Welcome to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast aimed at better understanding other people and better understanding ourselves. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. On my site, you can find descriptions and links to all the episodes, and there are transcripts from any of the episodes if you'd prefer reading them. If you appreciate what I do with this podcast, I'd hugely appreciate you leaving me a review on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me. I'm not doing many interviews lately as I'm busy working on a book about reducing American divides, so that's taking a good amount of time. But this was an interview I thought was important, and also it's a topic directly related to some of the main themes of my book. It's a talk with Matthew Hornsey, who's a psychology researcher at the University of Queensland in Australia. The paper of his that caught my attention was titled Deviance and Dissent in Groups and was published in 2014 co-authored with Yolanda Jetton. That paper focused on the motivations that group members can have to disagree with and criticize their own group. It also examined the beneficial role that group dissenters can play in a group. And all of that was interesting to me because one of the main themes of my book is that if our goal is to reduce our divides, it's hugely important to criticize bad and unreasonable and divisive thinking in one's own political group. I think it's entirely possible that this is the most efficient path to reducing polarization. Promoting in-group criticism as a worthy and noble thing to do and getting more people to do it. If you'd like to read a recent piece I wrote about this, you can search for Zach Elwood Medium. You'll find my Medium blog and then just look for the piece about criticizing your own group. I think this is a hugely important topic. The idea that groups don't respond well to criticism from outsiders is a theme Matthew Hornsey has explored in his research. His research has delved into the psychological dynamics between groups and how messages can be persuasive or not, depending on whether they come from an in-group member or an out-group member, and what other factors make such messages likely to be persuasive versus ignored or disrespected. So his work is very relevant to anyone interested in reducing us-versus-them polarization. And I think reducing polarization is hugely important, not just to the U.S., but to the entire world, because studies have shown that most countries in the world have become more politically polarized since 2005. A little more about Matthew, he's published over 170 papers, and in 2018, he was elected a Fellow of the Academy of Social Scientists in Australia. If you like this talk and are interested in group psychology and being more persuasive with your communications, I recommend checking out his papers, which you can find at Google Scholar. I'll include some links to his work on the entry for this episode at my site, behavior-podcast.com. Okay, here's the talk with Matthew Hornsey. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. So it seems like a major theme of your research is examining why people can believe such different things. And is that an accurate way to put the theme of a lot of your research? And if so, maybe you could talk a bit about why that theme of research interests you. Yeah, I think that's a pretty close description of the various things I've done. If I try and throw a blanket over all my research projects, I sometimes think, well, I'm really interested in why people resist apparently reasonable messages. And I I think that I don't know if you've heard that phrase, research is me-search. Like quite often researchers gravitate towards things that they're terrible at. And, you know, historically, I think I was pretty terrible at persuasion. I was no good at influencing people. Um, and I sort of low-key blame my dad for this. When I, when I was a kid, my dad used to, used to tell me, Matt, you know, you really don't have anything to fear about speaking your mind. You know, even, even if what you have to say is confronting to people, they might get defensive in the short term. But if you have right on your side, if you have the facts on your side, then your argument's going to win out in the end. You know, that sounded like a noble and appropriate way to live your life. And so I went into my adulthood and I guess I became quite mouthy and assertive at speaking out because in my mind, good arguments went out in the end, right? I had nothing to fear, but, you know, over time it it became... (laughs) pretty clear that this wasn't really working out for me so yes people were getting defensive but no this defensiveness wasn't going away like my dad had predicted and uh also i I wasn't really changing people's minds like if anything people seem to be other people seem to be able to change people's minds better than i could and and so at some point i had to stop and say you know dad i love you but but your advice was terrible 
and I and I had to I had to go back to the drawing board and ask myself that question like why is being right not enough? Mm. And so that started me on this twenty year journey examining the science and the art of persuasion and influence. And I've carried that through. I started off looking at why people resist apparently reasonable criticisms of their group culture, and then I was looking at you know why people resist reconciliation efforts from outsiders and. And, and, and I also do a lot of stuff about why do people reject uh, consensual views on science around vaccination, around climate change, et cetera. When it comes to the divergent narratives that we can have about the world and about reality, is that divergence of narratives something that concerns you? Do you see it as one of the existential threats the, the human race faces, our, our tendency to get in these uh, highly conflictive divergence of narratives? Uh, well, look, yeah, yes and no. I mean, many of these diverging narratives don't really harm anyone. Mm. Right? So people can fight as much as they want about the origin of our species and about evolution versus creationism. But I struggle to see the victims sometimes other than my internalized sense of you know, scientific honor. And, you know, you'd have to say, look, would you wish it away? Like if you had a magic wand... And you could create a world where there was no diverging narratives and everyone thought the same thing and there was no conflict around ideas. Would you want that kind of world? Because that could get a bit cult-like and creepy. But then I, you know, one of the reasons I've, I focus on climate change and vaccinations, for example, is that you know, these are core existential threats. I mean, we need to know how to respond to a pandemic and we need to ha- know how to respond to climate change. And scientists are trying to help us there that's where i start to get concerned and you, you see these um the, these schisms in society and cultural wars developing over high stakes situation that actually we need to be agreeing on yeah it seems like there's there's different areas in there because it's there can be you know differences in opinions or differences of perceptions of of issues and and uh, various topics but then you've got the the highly polarized kind of us versus them uh, stances, which are often so emotionally driven of, of these us versus them narratives, which, and I guess that's, that was the thing I was more thinking about of these narratives of uh, perceiving the world in, in, a, in an us versus them, good versus evil way, which, and that kind of informs various other narratives and topics. Uh, and that seems yeah. to be the, the real destructive form of like divergent, narratives that, that at least what i was thinking of. that that's right i mean if i had to create a world i'll create a world that allowed people to disagree and to have conflicts but ultimately i'd like to think that it was with a view to creating consensus like what like the the fighting and the differences of narratives and the conflict is just a painful way of getting to the truth that's my preferred mental model of how humanity should work. <laughs> and as soon yeah, as you a get nice, an, a nice uh, positive view, yeah, yeah. How it should work, yeah. But as soon yeah. as you get an us and them dynamic, you get depressed, right? Because there's something about that us and them dynamic that is self-perpetuating. Uh, as, as soon as people see things in intergroup terms, you get these self-reinforcing processes of converging to the views and attitudes and values of your own group and defining yourself against uh, the views and attitudes and values of another group. And in those situations, truth is a casualty. There's no question because, uh, you know, a very insightful comment could be dismissed out of hand just because it was delivered by them and not us, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my research is about how to hack or to circumvent or to reduce that intergroup dynamic because once it starts, it's hard to stop. Right. Even that, uh, how you were talking about, you know, trying to persuade people, which everyone wants to do who who cares about something. And when you have that us versus them dynamic, even the act of trying to persuade people is perceived as, you know, malicious, a, a propaganda attempt, you know. And so even, you know, that it's almost like you can't win once things get to that us versus them, a, a wide us versus them feeling in a, in a society because the sheer act of persuasive uh, action is, is, is taken as maliciousness. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and, and my own data, it was just slapping me in the face around that, that you cannot create change in a group to which you don't belong. Mm. Um, 
particularly if there's a, an us versus them dynamic. And and what I realized, and I was just learning through the process of running these studies, but what I realized is that the first question that people ask, for example, when you try and reform a group or uh, make a recommendation for change or point out a problem, the first question people ask is not, are they right or wrong? The first question people ask is, why, would, why are they saying that? What's their motive? Mm. And it's only after they've answered that question that they start thinking about the right or wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously you can't just peel back people's skulls and stare into their brain and discover their motives. You have to, you have to guess at motive, often on the basis of fairly super, superficial characteristics. And, you know, group membership is one of those. And I'm telling you that the, the, the effects are huge, that, you know, I've got situations in which people are perfectly ready to accept a criticism of their culture, their their country, their profession, whatever it is, when it comes from one of their own. Um, but if there's exactly the same message is sent by somebody who's an outsider, they will hysterically reject it as being untrue. And, and, you know, people think, well, that's because the outsiders don't know what they're talking about. But it doesn't matter how much experience and expertise and, and information that I, I, I give to those outsider critics in my experiments, they just don't get to square one. And it's because they're failing that first test. They haven't convinced people um, that their motives are pure. Because by virtue of being seen as an outsider, people presume that you're only saying these things to be hurtful, to be spiteful, because you're jealous, because you want to make your group better, etc. And it's totally transformed how I engage in, in persuasion now. Like I realized that I used to spend 100% time credentialing my argument and now i realize i have to spend 80 percent of the time credentialing my motives Mm. and 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 only if i can win that battle do i even have a shot at getting people to listen to the quality of the argument yeah and i want to come back to to that group uh persuasiveness and group and group versus group uh interactions and but first i I was going to ask uh regarding divergent narrative kinds of scenarios one thing that strikes me in that area is that it's so hard for us, you know, to agree on even fairly simple philosophical scenarios, you know, for example, the trolley problem kind of scenarios where yeah. for people who don't know those things, someone's supposed to choose whether let it to let a train hit several people or pull a switch and send the train off to instead kill a single person. And so there's these, you know, philosophical moral problems and we can argue over even these very simple experimental problems and in that sense, it's not surprising in some sense that we can have such divergent narratives about, you know, how our values inform how we see the world. And I'm curious, is that a, do, do you feel the same way in the sense that it's really not that surprising? I feel like sometimes people are surprised that our narratives about the world can be so different. But with that in mind, I guess it's not that surprising to me often. No, I mean, and, and again, would you wish it away? Like, I mean, it's part of let a thousand flowers bloom. People are different. You know, I was reflecting on music the other day. Like one thing you can predict with total confidence about any human you meet is that they're probably going to be somewhat into music. I've never, I've never met someone who, who, who doesn't enjoy music at all. And humans are very distinct like that. I'm not sure there's too many species who are massively into music. But then people listen to completely different genres. Like for some people, their idea of bliss is like nerding out on, on, on opera and for other people, that's their idea of hell. And, and so, you know, in all sorts of really puzzling but wonderful ways, our, our minds go down little rivulets and, and even though we're all sort of the same, we, we, we have different kind of predilections and, and attitudes and values and that's part of the fun of it. I, I'm, I'm not really surprised by that i think where i get surprised by is again where it it goes beyond just being a a matter of taste or values or predilections it becomes a matter of objective reality so if you're looking at science for example around climate change or whatever it is um i i I still um, i still believe that there's such a thing as reality that lives outside our heads and and you get people who are honest brokers trying to like synthesize that knowledge about those things that are outside our heads and the stakes are high and we need to do something quickly. It's under those circumstances that I get surprised, I think, by our willingness to fight. But I I think that one thing I've learned over time is that often the fighting, it's not something that 
spontaneously happens under the skull of individuals, that there's vested interests and there's kind of structures of misinformation that train us to fight. It's not happening necessarily spontaneously. Um, there are campaigns designed to turn things that should be, for example, scientific conclusions into scientific debates. And, and so I guess when you think about that, it's probably less surprising. Yeah, and I guess a lot of that, you know, when it comes to the more surprising aspects of how people can believe such surprising things or different things, um, I mean, a lot of that gets back to that, that us versus them, those us versus them kind of narratives uh, of not trusting, you know, that it, it might seem obvious, something might seem obvious to to you or me, um, but that's because we we don't distrust the the people involved and uh, yeah, whether, whether that's a artificially created purposely created kind of distrust or, or sort of a, some sort of natural polarization, a lot of it comes down to that, that us versus them narratives. Would would you agree to that? Yeah, I I do. I think, you know, maybe we can talk about social media um, and the extent to which it, it has contributed to this, but it's almost like anything can get sucked into an us versus them narrative. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, <laughs> it's it just seems to be our go-to thing is to find our echo chamber or our tribe that believes X and to define ourselves against you know people who believe Y. But I, I was really struck during COVID um, in in the early days. I remember I'm from the University of Queensland, and I and there was a an academic there who who had done a press release, and he was talking about some scientists out there were starting to get hopeful that we could use this malaria drug. And I always forget the name of it, but I think it's hydroxychloroquine, right? We can use mm-hmm. this, this malarial drug, um, and for some reason maybe it, it can be effective at treating COVID, and some of the early signs are, are not totally unpromising. And, and so I always I filed that away. That we're in the early days of the pandemic and obviously looking for good news stories, and I thought, well, that could be massive if that was true. The trials hadn't been done, the tests hadn't been done, et cetera. Now, you might remember that at one point, Trump um, embraced hydroxychloroquine and started talking about that as, as, a, as a therapy for COVID. And at that point, I was no longer able to talk about, oh, there's like incipient research on hydroxychloroquine and the, the jury's not in yet, but you know maybe it's something. Um, I couldn't say that anymore because people would just hear that and go, well, so you're a Trump supporter? Mm, right. <laughs> And, you know, uh, it makes you realize that when people hear what you say, that it's, it's not just a reflection of what you think. It's a reflection of who you are. Like, whose side are you on? Mm-hmm. Like, what team? Pick a side. Yeah. Yeah. And so it got to the point where your views on the effectiveness of a particular drug that was still undergoing trials became a proxy for your values, morality, ideology, etc. Now, once, you know, if anything can get sucked into a culture war like that, then that's what gets me kind of concerned. Yeah, it really does seem like, yeah, it seems like almost anything could be. I mean, I sometimes just run thought experiments of theoretical things that, you know, surprising things that could theoretically get sucked into that. And it really seems like, you know, so much of this stuff is is around these us versus them emotions of, well, the other side is associated with this, this thing, and I think the other side is bad. Therefore, I must take the opposite stance. And this emotional thing drives so much of these divides. And I think our focus on the issues is sometimes just missing this underlying emotional, you know, psychological uh, dynamic that is driving all of this stuff. And I think one thing I realized pretty early on, you know, I'm, I've got a scientific mind, and so everything I think is with a view to getting closer and closer to the truth. That's what I've, I've got an accuracy motive. When I have a belief or an attitude, it's trying to get closer and closer to the truth. And I sort of thought everyone did. I just imagined that that's how everyone thought, that, that, that it was an accuracy motive that drove their beliefs. And then after a while, and mm-hmm. through my research, I realized actually very few people <laughs> do that. Not very few, but I would say a minority. I think for many people... Beliefs are tools that you use to signal what kind of person you are mm. and whose side you're on. Like sometimes it's about signaling your group identity and sometimes it's about signaling your personal identity. 
But really, I think that is in many ways the communicative function of a belief. Mm-hmm. The identity expressive function of a belief has taken over as the primary goal of a belief. And that's why you can have people say things that seem completely outrageous. And but bizarrely resilient in the face of counter evidence is because ultimately it's not about the truth. <laughs> it's not about accuracy. And you're wasting your breath with all your facts and arguments. It's about saying this is the kind of person I am. Well yeah, and I think the the more a society has anger, the more it becomes polarized, the more the more people feel, you know, f- obviously feel scared and angry and fearful about the other side. And that is what lends itself to people treating beliefs as tools because the focus is on the fear they feel about the other group, uh, the anger at the other group. So they're more willing to just, you know, that, that kind of becomes their overriding reality. So then therefore these other, you know, the, the accuracy of of specific statements or, or stances are, are less, are less meaningful in the moment to those people then, you know, the fight that they're in, if that makes and sense. I, and I, I don't want to trivialize that. You know, some people, these intergroup fights are extremely important to their livelihoods and to their, to their well-being. Right. They can um, literally be deadly for, for some fights, yeah. That's right. And, and so I don't want to just reduce everything to some kind of ridiculous emotional intergroup dynamic, but I do think that you're right. I th- there's two things I want to talk about there, though, um, and you talked about your know, fear of the outgroup, but I, I, th- I think sometimes what you get, and the data show this, is is anger towards the outgroup, and the, and the anger, a big chunk of that anger, is people's assumptions about how they feel about them. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, you know, for conservatives, for example, like a big chunk of their anger at liberals is their perception that liberals hate them, mm-hmm. and vice versa, right? And if you look at the rural-urban divide, you know, a lot of rural people have a strong stereotype that urban people don't care about them and they dehumanize them and they think they're stupid and they trivialize them, et cetera. So, Mock them on TV. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, like, can you blame them? Like, I mean, there's a kernel of truth to that, right? So, so I think that people are picking up on their sense of how the other group feels about them as a primary chunk of the anger. And that's why we need to be responsible, I think, in terms of our communication. Uh, that, you know, that's another point. But I, the the other thing is you talked about fear of the outgroup, um, which I think is real, but I think equally real is fear of the in-group. Mm. You know, I'm just going to out myself, like, because there's probably no point not doing that. Like, I'm solidly left and, and I've always grown up left-wing, liberal, kind of views and and you know most of my friends share those views etc but uh you know I, I would say that if i was going to be honest i feared the judgment of my own group probably even more so than the judgment of the other group right um so i think that that <laughs> fear and anger are there they, they just play out in in uh you know complex ways yeah kind of uh yeah when i when i talked about the the fear of the other group it's yeah it's all these complex emotions it's almost like this a hurricane system of like building, you know, reinforcing and, and a vicious cycle of all these different emotions. I mean, that's how I view these polarization dy- dynamics. They're all like self-reinforcing uh, emotions in this big swirl, you know, so you've got the hurt yeah. feelings, the the, the yeah. feelings that the, you're disrespected, the the fear of the other group, the fear of your own group, you know, it's all these, this complex swirl of, uh, of things going on, but uh, getting to the, yeah, the, maybe that's a good segue into, um, fear of what well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, internal uh, group criticisms. And so I'm working on this book about uh, aimed at healing American divides and reducing mm-hmm. political anger. Uh, I don't have high hopes it'll do much, but that's what I'm working on right mm-hmm. now. And one thing that has seemed increasingly important to me is the idea of questioning and cri- criticizing the views on our own political side that we view as more extreme and unreasonable and divisive. And so yeah. that would include not just political issue stances, but also very pessimistic and, and alienating and divisive narratives about the other group. And the more I've thought about these topics, the more important this idea of questioning one's own group and speaking out about one's own group in respectful, you know, ways, not, not angry ways. 
but the more important yeah. that idea has seemed to me and the main reason being is that you really just don't have influence on the opposite group i mean you can yeah. you can criticize and and morally judge the other group all day long but you know clearly that doesn't have much effect and i would i think many people would agree you're just creating more animosity in the other group uh but questioning our own group helps you know can can help bring down uh the 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 divisive narratives on our own side can help uh break some of the perceptions of monolithic stereotypes people have about one's own group. Mm. It can show that, you know, uh, it can encourage other people in the other group to question and criticize their group and break those stereotypes and so on. Yeah. So, and, and thinking about those ideas is what led me to finding your research about group deviance and group mm. conformity. And from what I gathered, you were interested in group deviance because it hadn't been focused on that much that it was largely group conformity that had been focused on the research. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about what led you to that research and what interested you and your colleagues in that area. Yeah. I mean, I, again, it was sort of a research as me search situation where I was like, a, you know, a, a naive, but <laughs> cocky kind of young academic. And I was trying to create change within my group. And, you know, that, that was within my discipline, within my school. And I, I felt a lot of conviction about that. And I, I, I just saw everything. I, I felt so rock solid in my argument, but I just felt like nothing was working. And, and, and so I started to try and do studies literally just to learn what I was doing wrong. And, and that was an interesting process. But, um, mm. but also I was sort of uh, emboldened to do this because when I first spoke to uh, – an academic about this idea about criticizing your own group, he said, well, there's no such thing. He's like, you, you can't criticize your own group. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, he was talking from his theoretical tradition, right, uh, which was also mine. And he was saying, well, according to that theory, you know, if you're criticizing your own group, you're not a psychological in-group member. You're an out-group member. Only outsiders <laughs> criticize groups. Insiders don't do it. I'm like, that is mm. so obviously not true. And to me, you know, one of the great, if you think about what's the definition of loyalty, you know, it's risking personal sacrifice to benefit the group. And what greater demonstration is there of group loyalty than trying to constructively create change to make it a better group? Because you're probably not going to get a whole lot of people thanking you for it, right? <laughs> you know, criticizing your own group is an incredibly combustive act. You become a lightning rod for a whole lot of stuff. So you're not going to win too many friends doing it, but you do it anyway sometimes because you just, you, you care. <laughs> you criticize because you care. And so I, I became really intrigued by that notion. There was very little research. The research was all just assuming that groups are strong and individuals are weak and it was all about conformity. And I'm like, no, if that was true, groups would never change, but groups do change. Right. I was just thinking that, that yeah, if that, with that pessimistic view, like groups would just never change. Yeah, it's doesn't make sense, yeah. So I, I think that in terms of my research, you know, you, you opened this question by talking about criticizing your own group and about whether that can help in the polarization scene. You know, it's interesting because in a lot of my research, you can see that people actually, when you get their private thoughts as opposed to what they say out loud, when you get their private thoughts, people are okay about well-targeted in-group criticisms. They're pretty good at dealing with it. But they sort of want it to be kept in house. They don't want outsiders to hear it. It's like, don't air your dirty laundry, and that that makes sense. But you know, I really pricked up my ears when you had your theory that actually by criticizing your own group, the other, the outsiders are going to love you more. <laughs> You're going to get less polarization, and there there is research that shows that. that it's not mine, mm. but it's some of my favorite research where they they they're, they're looking at conservative Jewish Israelis. And getting various messages from Palestinians. And one of the messages is, you know, where Palestinians are saying, look, maybe we've gone too far, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of tilted towards too much violence, etc. And you, you look at those sort of situations and you think, well, what are these conservative Jewish Israelis going to do with this information? That there's Palestinians fighting amongst themselves that they've been too radical. Because you could think, well, what they're going to do is exploit that. It's like they're divided. Mm -hmm. We're going to put our foot in the throat. You know, that's the, the assumption. But what happened? Exactly what you imagined, that the conservative Jewish Israelis 
who receive those messages with Palestinians criticizing their own group like Palestinians more. They're more conciliatory to Palestinians. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to compromise, right? This showed that they were humans like themselves. Yeah. Because half of the intergroup dynamic is that you imagine the other groups are like radical robots who don't differ mm-hmm. and they're, they're completely fueled by conviction. And, and so that's a frightening kind of thought. But when you can see that there's also just like the very human tendency towards dissent and debate within their group, mm-hmm. it softens people's hearts because they're like, actually, no, I can work with these people. Right. <laughs> this right. is a group that I'm familiar with. And, and, and I, I think that people underrate the strategic value of in, in-group criticism to promote more positive intergroup relations as well. It reminds me of uh, one, I interviewed Jamie Settle, who did research on the polarizing effects of Facebook, at least, you know, she theorized w- what the effects were that she found and, and why they happened. And one of the things she said that stuck with me was, you know, one of the, one of the ways we can fight polarization is showing how we don't fit into these stereotypical, you know, traits of our group. And, and, and clearly, uh, you know, criticizing one, one's own group is a way to show how we don't fit into these stereotypical molds, which, you know, plays into, uh, and I, I really think it is powerful. I mean, I've, I've seen plenty of examples of that in, in conversations I've personally had anecdotally, and I'd, I'd love to read that, see that research that you just mentioned because I, I hadn't heard of that, the uh, yeah. Israeli-Palestinian one, so that's interesting. Yeah. But I think that insight from this is Jamie Settle, but um, you know, I, I completely agree, um, and I agree with you that we, we have mental models of what the other side are like and what they think, and those mental models are defined by pretty extreme examples because uh, it's the extreme examples that sort of float to our consciousness. Uh, and that is the problem. Because as a social scientist, I'm privileged. I get to see what actual people actually think. Not what I think they think, filtered through the prism of social media or other kind of things. I get to see what people actually think. And when you have that opportunity, it's amazing because people sort of converge around a middle ground, even around highly polarizing issues. Like when I started doing research on climate change, I imagined that there were believers and there were skeptics and that they radically differed in their behavior and their values and even their beliefs about climate change, of course. But but when I got the data, I'm like, these self-identified believers, they sort of think, well, climate change is mostly human-caused and partly natural. And the skeptics are like, yeah, climate change is happening and it's probably partly human, but it's probably mostly natural. So that's the difference between, <laughs> that's where people live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty subtle distinction. It's not the dramatic differences that you imagine if you're relying on just the extreme examples that you're seeing filtered through the media. When I've had, sometimes I have conversations where I'm trying to show the, you know, the variety of thought and uh, in, in amongst conservatives, for example, and I'll, and I'll trot out some statistics like, you know, the majority of, uh, you know, 50 some percentage of conservatives in America are supportive of gay marriage and then uh, things like that. But uh, I think skeptics would say like, well, clearly, you know, but there are extreme, more extreme people leading that party. But I think the, the, you know, what I would say is the more we treat the other side as monolithic and all the same, the more extreme by all these dynamics we've talked about, the the emotional dynamics, the, the, the more extreme you're helping make that party by treating them and, and, and speaking as if they are monolithic and all as extreme and unreasonable as the as the most unreasonable people in that group in the same way that, you know, the more conservatives act as if all liberals are American hating, uh, you know, want to want to burn down buildings and, and, and riot and stuff. The more, the more they act in those ways, the more it, it feeds into some of the the most angry and unreasonable liberal side, uh, it fires up those kinds of beliefs. So there, there's just these dynamics. And I think uh, when it, these things are hard to talk about because people will think that you're trying to make like, uh, you know, false equivalency, both sides kind of arguments where you're saying like, you know, basically saying anything goes. But I think what I, what I often try to focus on is the the way that we speak, the the that is a very important thing and it's not some side thing. It's not some no. off to the side thing. It, it, it is a fundamental driver of, of these, of these 
things that are happening. It's a, the language that we use, the divisive language that we use, the simplistic narratives that we, that we speak are key drivers of the polarization and, and funneling into building the, the unreasonable narratives. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, we live, like the more you live in a divided world, I mean, we all live in echo chambers and bubbles. We all do. Um, And so often, you know, I could live my life and not meet a Trump supporter, you know, in in my inner circle. And all you have to define your sense of that group is language. (laughs) You know, it's what they say. And all they have to define the rules is, is what we say. And so, of course, language is important and, and loose talk can be destructive. But, you know, I heard you say earlier, well, of course, we all presumably when we're talking across group boundaries, we're trying to persuade the other group. And I, and I think, actually, that's another thing I've had to let go of is that I always mm. thought that when people were arguing about ideas, they were trying to persuade the other group. And then it took me a while to realize that actually that's not true either. Because if they actually thought they were trying to persuade the group, they'll do it differently. True. That I think often what they're doing is that they're just enjoying the tribalism <laughs> and they're enjoying uh, righteousness. marinating in their own kind of virtuousness mm-hmm. and they're enjoying signaling to their own side their credentials as an in-group member. But, I mean, if you do people really think you're persuading the other group by locating yourself as an outsider and hurling moral insults at each other? Like, on, what experience have they had that that works? Does that work for them? I don't think that they – I'm not always convinced that even activists are trying to persuade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I get – that's where I start to, to get impatient because I think that if you really care <laughs> – pragmatic focus on the psychology of communication should be front and center of what you think about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I actually don't see that a great deal. And also when I see people who do exemplify that, I sometimes see them torn down. And so I think that, you know, like for me, I've had to, if I really care about something, just adopt almost like a radical pragmatism. It's like if something works, like in climate change, for example, if you need to bring conservatives on board, I can't be just talking about what I think and my values. Mm -hmm. I need to be thinking about my audience. I need to be thinking about their values and their fears and their emotions. And I need to come up with messages that are congenial to that. You know, that's my view anyway. But I, I, I have to say that like pragmatic pragmatism is sort of losing the battle like with purity. And, you know, people tend to be focusing on purity of tactics, you know, know, the purest expression of my worldview, rather than thinking about pragmatically what's actually going to affect change. Yeah. And and I was actually going to ask, with your focus on all these topics, with your research, how frustrating it might be to look around and see how unpersuasively people speak. And and I know that's, that's been the case for me. I mean, I've just been tremendously frustrated by how even very influential people, politicians and journalists and other influencers, how even very smart and, and, uh, you know, politicians that I I think some people would perceive as being quite, you know, quite moderate and helpful, but to me, they're just not, they don't speak persuasively and don't seem good at it. And, And there's so much antagonism, even amongst people who get credit for being relatively, uh, you know, not, not uh polarized or, or, or whatever but i, th- I think uh yeah it, it, and some of this stuff just seems so you know for anyone who's delved into these topics it, it it just seems so obvious that the the path is to like you said trying to think about your audience and trying to persuade them but i think i think, I think one of the problems with at least in american politics and and i'm sure you know other places too but i think that the, the system is kind of set up for not rewarding uh more bridge building and, and, and persuasiveness. So for example, if, you know, if there was a politician who suddenly was trying to build bridges and speak to both sides and, and, you know, speaking to the, to the most reasonable people on the other side and, and such, I think they would, you know, just immediately be perceived as weak and not get money and not get votes and, and such. And so I think that there can be this, this, especially in a two-party system and especially in the American system, I think for various reasons, there can be this rewarding of, of the most, uh, antagonistic kind of us versus them rhetoric and in a way that's really unhelpful. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I, 
it's very common to hear people bemoan the polarization of society, but I'm thinking if you don't want it, reward people who don't do it and punish people who, who do. You know, that is pretty much as simple as that. <laughs> and um, But, you know, I think that we, we're concerned about polarization in abstract, but in concrete terms, few of us are brave enough um, to, to really, like, just chart our own course with regard to that. I mean, I, I do get frustrated when I look around, but I have tears of frustration, T-I-E-R-S. Um, and so there's some people who actually think that creating social change is about demolishing the enemy and we're living in, a, in, in wartime in terms of values mm-hmm. and ideas. And, and you know, I, I don't actually agree with that, but I at least respect the fact that they've got an agenda and this is how they're doing it. And there's some people who believe that if you just hurl moral insults at people and shame them enough, then then they're going to change. They're wrong, but at least they have a, they're they're trying, they're just trying badly. Um, I think my deepest frustration is with the people who I suspect aren't even trying and that they're enjoying or getting reinforced by the gladiatorial atmosphere. And, you know, you can tell a politician that's, that's doing that from one who's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- I'm curious, do you feel like there's something about the aspect of modern life in the, in the sense that we're, we're, we're less communal and more isolated in, in an existential sense from each other and, and, and have less sensory input in these kinds of things? Do you think there's something about modern life that, that lends itself to us looking or being more enchanted with these, you know, the, these existential kind of us versus them more like narratives about the world because it, it does, you know, lend itself, lends some meaning to our life. Do you, do you see any of that? And that, that that's probably a very much in a getting off the research, but into opinions, if, if, but if you care to answer. No, if, if, you know, if you're happy for me to digress in terms of opinions, I've got I've got plenty of those. I mean, I <laughs> sure. I look the thing about reflecting on modern life is that it's very difficult to get a strong sense of what people were like before. And um, mm-hmm. but you know, you said well, maybe people are more isolated, and I, it's pretty hard to disagree with that. There's probably less face to face community than there used to be. So if we take that, but people's need for community hasn't changed. And so I guess there's a basic algorithm there. If you, don't ha- if you can't achieve it through actual face-to-face communities, um, well, you can achieve it through kind of virtual communities. And so I think that, I mean, <laughs> I, remember, I remember when I was a kid, I used to, like, in the playground, this is like 1970s, 1980s era, where there was lots of violent games being played in the playground of it. All these games sort of were various versions of groups of people ganging up on each other and doing terrible things. <laughs> and, and then later, you know, I, I played sport and it was a bit the same. And, um, but I just remember just, just, God, it's fun. And it's, you, you, it's simplifying. You know, if you're in these, like, intergroup contests, you're not angsting about who am I, what do I think, What's my place in the world? Who are my people? You, you don't. You, those questions are answered for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's like a euphoric rush associated with that. So, I, I, you know, I think that people are achieving that through kind of culture wars these days. And, 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 you know, it's not just that people have opinions, but those opinions are then reinforced by an echo chamber and then they kind of identify with these communities. And, and so I think that maybe you're right. The other thing, you know, reflecting on modern life, and I, I don't want to come across as too negative because actually I'm super optimistic about the trajectory of society, in fact, because, uh, you know, we talk about the, the culture wars and everything's like about the left and right. But you don't, you don't have to go back that far. I mean, you look at the middle of the 20th century and all those battles are about the left and the right as well. But those battles cost tens of millions of lives. There was like a blood flood, not just World War II, but, mm. you know, a whole bunch of wars that happened around then. And, and so if you, if you take that 100 years ago, that kind of world, and then you look at what we're fighting about now, which is morality and ethics mm-hmm. and appropriateness, you know, I'll take that <laughs> any day <laughs> over, over what we were fighting about before, which is like world domination. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, I think that the underlying instincts are always going to be there. We're always going to be tribal. We're always going to have these integrated dynamics. But when you look at what we're choosing to fight about now, you know, you can afford to be a bit last half full about it. Yeah, that's what gets me is the people who act as if we're facing these existential, like, horrible, you know, the, the very pessimistic framings of our divides are almost in, not not taking into account how like you said, how how violent and how high animosity things were in so many areas in, in the recent past. And it's almost like the more we act, the more we forget that and, and forget that, that what context we're in and, and the relative importance of these things. It's like the, the more we drum up these emotions, you know, and, the, and, and I think there's some self-reinforcing uh, you know, things there where the, the the more we act as if we're in a life or death war, the more it will become so. And we, I think we all tend to forget like how bad things really can be. You know, we're like living in this yeah. surrounded by media where, you know, we, we tend to think everything's nice all the time. And that that's the, the message we're told, like life should be great all the time with, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and we should always get our way. And, and then that's just clearly not ever going to be the, the case. There's always going to be fights and struggles because because we're humans and i think we we tend to forget the <laughs> the the uh ugliness that that can come with uh humanity yeah yeah, yeah. i mean there's a tendency to think it's a, it always astonishes me that people think that but you know the sense that the past was warm and benevolent and the present and the future is cold and conflictual and uncaring I'm thinking, do you, do you know nothing about history? Like, we have made so much progress mm. as a mm-hmm. species. We are smarter than we've ever been. We're more educated than we've ever been. We're living longer than we've ever been. We're richer than we've ever been. And we're nicer than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of our moral, you know, duty of care for all people from all sorts of walks of life, this was not historically how we operated. We've got far fewer people dying from crime and war than at any time in human history per capita, right? And I've never seen, it always strikes me how few friends you win by pointing this out. No one wants to hear it. Um, everyone wants to believe that we're living in the darkest of times. Well, I think maybe what people are assuming is you're saying is that there's no problems right now and you're being Pollyanna-ish with it. But, you know, I, I, but no, I'm not saying that. I'm, there's lots of problems. I'm, I'm saying exactly what I'm saying, which is that, the course of human history, we're, do, we're, do, we're doing great, actually. Right. It's, the, and, it's that um, unnuanced, uh, it's, the, it's that you're either with us or against us, kind of like, are you in this, oh, which binary are you in, you know, take, choose, the, choose, choose the side, right? Because people aren't listening to what you're saying. They're listening to what they think you're really saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you have to, like, all the fights, you know, 90% of the fights I have is not because of what I say. It's, what, it's not the argument. It's the shadow argument, the argument that they presume is lurking under the surface there. They're fighting um, some perceived boogeyman of 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 the uh, of the argument. Yeah, I see that. I mean, when, on social media, on Twitter, it's just like every day. It's just every so much like you know, fifty percent of the things I see of people arguing are just people like misunderstanding or or taking something that's not there and and taking the worst case you know argument of the of the other person or whatever. It yeah. drives me wild. I mean, like. <laughs> Because, I mean, it's so robust. I see it over and over again, and I even see it in academia. I see it a lot in academia. And one thing that drew me to academia was that I felt like it was a marketplace of ideas and it was all about arguments and, and you know, you could be frank and fearless. But, you know, all these dynamics play out in academia as much as it does on social media. Um, and, you know, th- it's very difficult to say something without people thinking what you're really signaling is something much bigger and darker. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you, if you've got that mental model, then it's, it's, it's pretty hard to find common ground on things. So I saw something recently where it was a, it was a poll about, I think it was American, an American poll showing, you know, conservative and and liberal divergence in, in, uh, trust in science, you know, one of these kind of polls and, uh, and, and even in that, you know, there's so much like identity and, uh, choose it, choosing a stance based on what you perceive the other side, you know, for example, like liberals, li- liberals, uh, uh, on polls, you can see liberals stated beliefs and trust in science go up in the last few years, but that, that can, that can be perceived mainly as a, as a reaction to them 
associating conservatives with the group that doesn't trust science, you know, and, and I, think, I think there, yeah. you know, there can be many reasons liberals in the past or now have, you know, have been skeptical of science. Uh, yeah. You know, for example, like you, there, there's the replication, uh, you know, crisis or, or replication problem in, in psychology, for example. And that's not to say you don't trust, you know, that's not a reason to distrust science, but just to say that there can be reasons for someone to be skeptical of scientific findings. And, and it's not a conservative or liberal thing, but you see that divergence uh, in 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 the those kinds of things related to like group identity, I think it makes me sad that science has been dragged into the culture wars. But you know, here we are. But it's a it's a good example you give because there's huge like, like you say, there's a huge gulf in trust in science between conservatives and liberals. But you go back to the early seventies, and if anything, conservatives trusted science more than liberals. It really started deteriorating, you know, in the eighties and nineties. But it's the same with climate change. I mean, you get these enormous gulfs between conservatives and liberals in the US, but also in Australia, very polarized around ideology. But you go back to the early 90s, you struggle to find those effects. People, conservatives, there's nothing inherent to being conservative that makes you reject science or reject climate science or whatever it is. And in fact, in many countries, that those relationships don't exist. It's not like, again, people are spontaneously reaching those views. I think that there, there come situations where elites, let's in this case, let's say conservative elites, start coaching conservatives what to think about climate science, and you could argue about why that happened, and people take their cues. So in these very tribal environments, I think that's what happens. It's like people aren't even really in charge of their own attitudes, behaviours, narratives. They're sort of coached about them. We can talk about the, the natural human instinct towards polarization, et cetera, but at the end of the day, you have to reserve a degree of judgment for those provocateurs who create these intergroup dynamics. They do it mindfully, they do it strategically, and they're well funded to do it. You know, I think there's so much turbulence and chaos in these things too, where, you know, in initial conditions, which I don't know if you know Michael Macy, but I interviewed him for the podcast and he had, mm-hmm. he had done some research on kind of the chaotic nature of like group stance, formation, political stance formation and you know uh how how like theoretically you know abortion could have gone in different ways in in America you know for when you're considering it wasn't a a highly identified uh, group identified uh issue in like the 70s yeah. and the fact that conservative parties in other countries are uh you know m- the more uh small government and uh pro choice uh, you know, stay out of our our lives, kind of party. So mm-hmm. it, it's interesting thinking about how so many of these things that we tend to think of as like, oh, these things are associated with this group and these kind of group stances bundle together because these people are so bad and their group stances align in these good or bad ways. And, and so much of it could just be due to how the you know the the, the chips fell or the the randomness of uh, of history and the early movers and, and such. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, the, the basket of attitudes that you're supposed to have as a liberal or a conservative, you know, if you look at that, that those, you know, some of them could have gone either way. And, um, and yeah, it could be just randomness, how the chips fell. But I suspect, you know, if you look at climate change again, it wasn't that random. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, some but, seem more seem more determined than, than others, yeah. Yeah, well, there, there, there's individuals who make it happen and, and, and introduce some attitudes and values and beliefs into, in, into an ideology. <laughs> and, and, they, and they do it in a very mindful way and, and, they, and they do it well. But, I, but yeah, I, I think sometimes we um, imagine these things are rusted on, that there's somehow ineffable, that they've always been like that. But sometimes you only have to go a little way back into human history to realize that wasn't the case. So uh, I realize we didn't talk much specifically about your research, uh, but I'm curious to ask, is is there anything that you wanted to mention about, like, what's the most surprising or interesting thing you found in your research that stands out or or maybe something that you're most proud of that you'd like to to mention at the end? Well, I mean, I've done research on so many different things, um, but I, I, you know, I think I've anticipated some of the things that were revelatory to me and you know, in retrospect, seem obvious, but at the time were revelatory, such as people say things sometimes without really believing them or that beliefs aren't really about capturing reality or capturing truth. That was such a shock to me. 
the idea that people don't listen to what you say, they listen to what they think you're really saying and what your motives are, that was a shock to me. Shouldn't have been, but it was. Um, and I, I, I think also with my research on uh, climate change and vaccination, realizing that you, you just have to screen out what people say in many ways because so often of what people, so much of what people say is a post hoc rationalization of a conclusion they want to reach for other reasons. It could be emotional reasons. It could be identity reasons. It could be for vested interest reasons. But, you know, I realize now that many of us operate like cognitive lawyers, not like cognitive scientists where you weigh up all the evidence and reach a conclusion. Mm -hmm. They're more like cognitive lawyers. They've reached the conclusion and then they embrace evidence in a biased way to reinforce that conclusion. Now, whatever people say to reinforce that conclusion, you probably shouldn't get too worked up about, right? Because it's just, it's a retrospective, they're just grabbing at arguments to retrospectively reinforce a gut feeling. So really, you just have to screen the words out. That was a surprise to me. And in terms of persuasion now, I think though what you need to do is to focus on those underlying reasons. What are the roots of people's attitudes? What are those underlying identities, ideologies, fears, emotions? And work on them. So I, I guess through my career, I've just got to a much less literal notion about persuasion where I thought it was all about the words and the arguments and to, and to have a more psychological approach. Thanks a lot for coming on, Matthew. How, how, uh, how can people keep up with your work if they want to follow your work? What's the best way? You know, <laughs> embarrassingly, I think partly because of the work I do, I stay off social media. That's healthy. Um, but I, uh, I do my best to get out there. So I think if just people Google my name, uh, mm -hmm. academics can go onto Google Scholar, et cetera. But just Google my name and you're going to find, uh, you know, various things. I try and make things open access as much as possible. But, but yes, I've had to basically, you know, protect myself from all the dynamics that I've been talking about. Mm -hmm. and wanna, I'm just too scared. You don't want to wade into the, the cesspool for, for research purposes? <laughs> I don't. And, you know, it's partly because I'm protecting myself emotionally. You know, I do research on climate skepticism and anti-vaxxers and conspiracy mm, theorists. And yeah. you get hate mail. I don't want that. Like, I yep. get enough of it anyway. But the other thing is that I feel like the more I go on social media, the less I'll remember. The less I'll remember, the less of my own research, which is that people actually more or less agree on many things. The differences aren't as dramatic as you think. And I don't want my mind warped <laughs> by seeing right. the polarized environment of Twitterverse, right? That is, it, yeah. it is such a warping environment. And I, I really do believe that in, in the future, we'll look back and realize how warping it was for some people, because I feel like there's quite influential people that because they interact with people, you know, such such an extreme subset of a small subset of people on Twitter, they they start to that is how they start to perceive the conflicts of the world. And you know, it's like they're just interacting with this small, very small population that's representative of a very small number, but it can yeah. seem like a life or death, you know, struggle for the if they're wading into it every day and constantly fighting. And I mean I can name yeah. quite a few people I think who have their 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 rationality has has been subsumed by their their yeah. belief that they're in this you know life or death war that they're engaging in. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I and I know myself. I, I would be one of those. People. There's, <laughs> I, no, there's no question. So I just have to. It's almost like I know I'm going to get addicted. So I have to stay. <laughs> to yeah, stay mean, out. To, I feel like that makes me a better person, but a better a better academic. I, I well. I'll, I'll be. I don't even check my notifications responses on Twitter. Like I, I literally have tens of thousands of unread responses on twitter because i just i don't find yeah. it healthy like i just like making points in these political threads and and mostly aimed at depolarizing but i so i get hate from both sides and i i literally just don't even i'm just trying to make points and i don't care to read all these like hateful replies i get so i just don't even check my replies i'll, I'll check replies of specific tweets but that's how yeah. toxic no, i, I do find it, it yeah but I, I, li I like your ideas zach and i think that if you're getting hate from both sides you're probably on the right track well, of course, I like to hear that, but, um, you know, that, that's my own bias. But, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Matthew. This, this has been great. All right. Thanks a lot. It's been fun chatting. That was Matthew Hornsey, the psychology researcher and professor at the University of Queensland in Australia. If you enjoyed this talk, I think you'd like checking out some of his research papers, which you can find on his Google Scholar page. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might like checking out some of the other political polarization-related episodes I've done. You can check out the site for this podcast at behavior-podcast.com.
And I've also got a more curated list of all the politics-related episodes, and you can find that near the top of my site. I've delved into a bunch of polarization-related topics, including distrust in the 2020 election and racism in America, and a lot more. If you think I'm doing something worthwhile with this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. That'd be hugely appreciated. I don't make any money on this podcast, and I spend a good deal of time on it. So if you'd like to send me some money to encourage me to do more, I've got a Patreon account, which you can find at patreon.com slash Zach Elwood. That's C-A-C-H-E-L-W-O-O-D. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle there is A Poker Player. Okay, thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies.